really deals with the first two, knowing and growing, knowing and growing. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and uh, I want you to pay attention to the tone that he's writing in. I, I talked about this, this last week. He's, he's not somber. He's not correcting them. He, there's an excitement in his voice as he shares. Starting verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven on an earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Paul is excited about what he is sharing. This is good stuff. And so, 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 so he's writing to them, and he, he's wanting them to grasp. And if you read the book of Ephesians in its entirety, this is smack dab right in the middle of it. And he's going, guys, you just got to get this because it's awesome. It's amazing. It's kind of like when a Cowboys fan is trying to convince you that, never mind, that's a bad illustration. Sorry to the Cowboys fans, but they're excited. You've got to just see what I see. You've got to know what I know. You've got to understand what I understand. You, let me just help you out. This is what you have in God through Christ. And he goes on, and he's, it's like he's saying, and it's not just this, it's this, and it's this, and it's this, and this, and this, and there's more. But wait, there's more. And it's good, and it's amazing. Oh, and by the way, it's available to everyone. And that's really the key here in Ephesians, that it's not just for some. It's not just for the old or just for the young, or for the men, or the women, or the, the Jews, or the Gentiles, or the, it doesn't, it, it is for everyone. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So being rooted and established in love, in fact, there's, it's right in the middle of this, it's kind of this key concept that he's sharing right here in verse 14 says that out of God's riches, out of God's riches, he would strengthen you by his spirit that Christ may dwell in your hearts. I actually have in my Bible, if you, if you look right here, you can't read it, but um, at some point years ago, I, I made this note, verses 14 through 21, kingdom mentality, kingdom mentality. See, it starts out, Paul saying, listen, God the Father plays a part in this. And the Holy Spirit plays a part in this. And Jesus is there as well. And it's, so it's the fullness of the Trinity doing a work in your life, preparing your heart so that you can receive everything that he has for you. 
And once he sets that up, he says, now that you know that, now that you know that God is on your side, that the Holy Spirit is empowering you, and that Jesus is going to dwell in your heart, now that you know that, you will be rooted and established in love. And once you're rooted and established in love, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have power. Everyone say power. power. Let's try that again. Say power. power. Yeah. You're going to have power. We like power. <laughs> right? I like it when I turn on the light switch and, and the lights come on. That's a good thing. We were uh, up at camp the other day, and I got an email from Edison saying that the power had unexpectedly gone off at our house, which I thought was kind of cool. I was like, yeah, hey, I got a notification. Because we weren't home, and our fridge is the kind of fridge that if the power goes out and it comes back on, the fridge goes into like the safety mode, and you actually have to wheel it out and unplug it and plug it back in. It's really a pain, but we discovered it. That's what you have to do. And I was like, oh, I got this, I got this notification that the power went out, and so when I got home, I was like, first thing I did, wheel that thing out and plug it in because I don't want to lose all of our food. Power is a good thing. We like to have power. We want that power. God says, I'm going to give you power so that you can grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. See, because without the Holy Spirit empowering you, we can't fathom it. We don't have what we need to even imagine how powerful God is and how he moves and wants to move in our lives. See, because when you discover and grasp and understand how wide and how long and how, high, how deep and how high is the love of Christ, what, what happens in it, it does something inside of you and it expands you. And then he says, I'm going to fill you and you're going to be filled to the measure. The sentence is a little weird. I don't know if you've ever read that. Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Because I don't want to say I want to be filled to the full measure of God. But he says filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. How many bakers in the house? Okay, a few of you. I'm taking names down. No, I'm just kidding. Um, filled to the measure. This is what that is. There is an exact proportion or an exact amount that God is saying, I want to pour into your life. And it's no more or no less than what it's supposed to be. I'm a, I'm a rule follower. I'm a firstborn. So when I bake, it is exact. If they say one cup, it is going to be one cup. It's not one cup and the little bit that spills. It is one cup. If it's one teaspoon of salt, it is one teaspoon. Not, oh, that's about right. Right? Anyone else? You're just. That's, that's the fill to the measure. I'm going to make sure that it's exactly, see, because as God is working in your life, he knows exactly what you need when you need it so that you will be filled to the measure. And then he goes on to say, what's the measure? All the fullness of God. Say all. All, all the fullness of God. That tells me that he's not going to leave anything out, that nothing will be lacking this is what God has for you. Right in the middle of that, rooted and established, this is the key. That once God has done this work in our lives and we are rooted and established in love, that we have access to this. We can engage in it. What does it take to be rooted and established? We started last week in Matthew chapter 13. And I want to go back to thir Matthew 13 because we didn't finish our conversation about the four kinds of soil. So if you turn to your Bibles, Matthew 13, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at the soil. 
See, because Paul actually addresses the fact that there has to be an inner working before there's the evidence on the outside. That God is going to pour out, and God has all of this, this richness for you, and out of his great richness, but, but he knows that we don't have the capacity to receive it, so the Holy Spirit does a work in us so that there can be something deeply deposited in the person of Jesus Christ. So before the outward happens, there's an inward working that takes place, and that's what Jesus addresses here in Matthew 13, chapter, uh, uh, verse 1 through 9. It says this, That same day Jesus went out of the house, and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. And while all the people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables, saying... Let me just stop there for a second. Um, if you ever wondered, like, well, there's no technology. I know people were like, you know, why do we use all that technology in church? Well, because it's available. Jesus used what was available. And if you know anything about sound waves, they tra travel better over water... Jesus got in a boat, moved away from shore because he knew that his voice would project over the water. For those of you who are like sound geeks, it's kind of cool. This is an example of Jesus using what was available to him to reach more people. I love that. He says this, the farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And then jumping down to verse 18, Jesus gives the interpretation or the explanation for this parable. He says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. I've read this passage before and I mentioned this last week. When I read this, I, I tend to go like this. What kind of soil am I? For some people, they look at this passage and go, oh, that's just a reference to when you first come to Jesus. That's, that's talking about that initial seed that he makes in your life, that initial deposit. But, but I believe it's greater than that. I believe that God's word, his seed, is consistently and constantly being sown into our lives. And so we have to ask ourselves, what kind of soil are we? You might identify, oh, I'm, I'm this. Now, uh, can we agree that everyone wants to be good soil? But here's what I know about myself, that I'm all of those at times. 
I'm all of those at times, probably more than I'd like to admit. I say that again. I'm all of those kinds of soil, probably more than I'd like to admit. How do I know? Because I know my life. And I know where I'm producing and where I'm not. I know where there's plenty and where there's not. And, 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 and here's the thing about the seed. The seed is always good. That we can never blame the seed and say, well, the seed that, that, that God gave me was bad. God's word is never bad. It's always exactly what we need right when we need it. It's perfect. It is God-breathed. So what's the variable? We are. We are. I'm all of them. And a sign of maturity and growth in the life of the believer is for someone to stop and say, you know what? I need to deal with the soil of my life. I need to do some hard work because I'm not seeing the results produced that I know God wants to produce in me. You tracking with me this morning? We good? All right. All righty. So we're going to talk about the four kinds of soil. Jesus talks first about the, the seed that fell on the path. The seed that fell on the path. What did he say happened with that seed? Well, the birds just came and stole it, right? They came and ate it away. It never actually went into the ground. Nothing ever came of it. And he says that's the person who hears the word but doesn't understand it. It doesn't, it doesn't sink in. They're like, I hear the words, but they're not going anywhere. And so it just sits on the surface, it lays on the surface. And the thing about that hard surface is it's not just the seed that's not getting in. It's nothing else. The water and the air, no, nothing else is getting in. You see, back in, in those times in Israel, they didn't have paved roads like we did. And so the roads just kind of were these dirt paths where people walked. And you ever seen a path that's been worn maybe in, you know, if you go hiking up in the mountains or something. It's a place where people have walked so much that the ground has become compacted and nothing grows there. And it doesn't matter if no one's walked on it even for, for days or weeks or even months. Nothing can grow there because the ground has been so compacted. It's so trampled down and so hard that nothing can penetrate. And the problem about that kind of soil is the seed just lays on the top. It doesn't penetrate and it's vulnerable. It's ready to be snatched away. You ever seen a scarecrow, right? The scarecrow is the farmer's attempt to get the, the birds to not eat the seed, for the birds to go away, right? Because the, the birds will come and they'll try and eat the seed in the good soil and in, on the path, but they'll prefer the path because it's easier, and they can snatch that up. So as Jesus is talking about us then in this, this path, what does that look like in our lives? Because I think sometimes, just like the disciples and the people hearing this parable, we hear it and go, well, it, it kind of makes sense. But we've got to press into the scripture a little bit more to apply it and say, well, how does it apply to me? What does that look like in my life? So my question is this, what causes that kind of hardness in our hearts, in our lives? Well, in the same way it is with a path, it's the places in our lives that have been trampled on. The things that have been walked over, the things that have been pressed down, the things that have been marginalized and ignored. Things like this, misunderstanding. 
or lack of understanding. Misunderstanding or a lack of understanding. That's what Jesus says. For those who don't understand it, I hear the word, but I don't get it. Maybe, maybe it's someone who just never has grown up in church or has never heard the word. You know, we're living more and more in a time where people have never even heard Bible stories. That the stories of Noah and Moses, of these, these, these pivotal characters, of Jesus himself, that people don't even know the stories. There was an age and a season, a lot of you grew up, where, where biblical knowledge, and at least at a very surface level, was just the norm. But more and more, we live in a post-Christian society where people hear the word and they don't understand it because there's no place in their heart to receive it. Distraction. Distraction can be something that tramples down our hearts, that hardens our hearts. God's going, I want to see, sow seed into your life and, and you are so busy doing other things that it just lays on the surface. There's assumptions that are made. For someone who would say, you know, well, you know, all Christians are. All Christians are this. In our country right now, the word evangelical is not a good thing. Right? Am I right? Not because of Jesus, but because of people. And what that does, and the way that the enemy leverages that on his behalf, is he starts getting people to make assumptions. And what it does is it hardens their hearts, and it can harden our hearts. We can make assumptions about other people in the church. We can make assumptions about the people in our family. We can make assumptions about people's intentions. And every time we do, we're trampling down parts of our heart that God says, no, 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 that needs to be good soil. Assumptions like this, well, the Bible is just a book written by men, and so it has to have mistakes, mistakes in it. The assumption that this is not the inerrant, infallible word of God, which gives me then reason to say, I don't have to receive everything that it says. I can pick and choose, and our hearts get a little harder. Another thing that causes that hardness is pain and hurt and abuse tell you right now, I know some of your stories, and I know that many of you have been trampled on, that there have been people in your life who have walked all over you, and it has led to a hardness in your heart, more of a safety mechanism and a way of dealing with that pain. God says, I want to I break up those hard places so I can deposit the seed. So this isn't just a corrective word, it's a gentle word. That God would say, I know that there's those places. I know that there's those hard, hard areas. I know why they're there, and I want to work with you to break them up. Intellectual elitism creates hardness. So many of our young people in our colleges, in our high schools, and even in elementary school are subject to people who stand in front of them and purvey and spew their intellectual elitism and say, I know better than you and you must listen to me. Rather than teaching kids how to think, telling them what to think. It creates a hardness. And that one's one that I'm personally, I just feel like is so dangerous and something that we will deal with so much more in the future Kids that even grow up in church go off to college and are subject to 
to teaching that is not biblically based, is not, does not have a biblical worldview. And I'm okay. You know what? If people don't believe in Jesus, that's, that's between them and the Lord. But it's when people stand before others and use their influence to deny the power of the cross and tell people how they should think. There is a hardness there that, that I, would, I would say in many ways is one of the hardest to break through. And then neglect. Neglect leads to hardness. You know, the farmer who plows a field does not neglect the field. He tends to the field, making sure that the soil is ready to receive. So what's the danger of the hardened heart? It's this. It leads to rebellion. It leads to rebellion. The hardened heart says, I don't need God. I don't need God. There's not even an opportunity for the seed to germinate. It's a heart that says, I, I can do this on my own. Whether it's because of elitism or intellectualism or because of hurt and pain. Either way, it's the person who says, I've got this on my own. I can't trust anyone and I can't trust God. It's the heart that says there's no place, there's no room, and there's no place for his word. You know, Jesus' heart broke over those people and he still does. Psalm 58 and 95 verse 8 says this, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness. God speaking of the Israelites when they're out in the desert and they're hungry and they're tired and they're thirsty and they start complaining against the God who led them out of Egypt and, his, and they're, they're like shaking their finger at him saying, you brought us to this place and we're going to die in the desert we were better in slavery, slavery than we are here. And every word that came out of their mouths, their hearts got harder. And God had told them, if you harden your hearts, you will rob yourself of blessing. If you harden your hearts, you will rob yourself of the blessing. We have to soften our hearts before the Lord so we can receive from Him the blessing He wants to deposit in each one of us. You know, a farmer, when he's dealing with a new field, I, I spent some time on YouTube this week researching. It's one of the things I love about preaching is I get to research random things. So I'm watching YouTube videos of plows in a field. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's really three different kinds of plows. Who knew? Maybe some of you do. Um, so there's, there's this plow. You've seen it. It's got just this big, this big hook on it. It goes real deep, and it's got a big wedge on it. Right, and, and it's this plow that plunges way down deep into the ground. They hook it up be, behind the tractor, and its sole purpose is to break up ground that is hard, break up ground that's never been plowed before. And, and those tractors, they get the biggest tractor they can, and they hook it up. And, you know, some plows are like as wide as this room. But these plows are not as wide because they, they have to break through harder ground. So they're narrower, and they hook it up to the biggest tractor, and then that plow just digs deep, and it starts breaking through that ground. And I saw a plow on, on this video that the, the wheels were, were literally spinning. No rocks, just hard, hard soil, hard dirt, trying to break up that ground. And once they've done that process with that deep plow, with this big wedge, then they come back with the discs. You ever seen the plow that has the discs, lots of discs? And those discs, what then they, they do is they take those big, big 
you know, pieces of, of, of dry dirt and they, they smash them together and they break them down into a finer piece. And so they'll plow the field again once it's broken up. And then they come the third time with a tiller, a big plow that then it takes all of that dirt and it just whips all, all, all over. And at that point, that field is now ready for seed. There's other things that they do on top of that. For the heart that is hardened, what has to happen is the ground has to be broken up. And it's not an easy process. Every one of us, I believe, deals with hard places in our hearts. And the temptation is to do this. I don't see it. I'm just not going to look at that part of myself. Or I'm going to hide it from other people. And you know what that does? It hardens it even more. For the person who wants to grow in the relationship with Jesus Christ, what has to happen is we take the plow to the ground and we start digging up those places as hard and as painful as it could be. And we come face to face with our error, our sin, our hurt, and our pain, knowing that if I don't do it, I'm going to miss out. If I do it, God will meet me in that place and he will do a work that I can't even imagine that I can't even imagine. Genesis process starts this week. <laughs> Good segue, huh? <laughs> Genesis process, there's still room, and I encourage you, if you want to find out more about it, but here's, here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. I, I, there's these things that I know I'm supposed to do that I don't do, and then there's things that I'm not supposed to do that I, I do those things. And why is it? And, he, and I love the frustration, the realness of Paul. Ah! I'm tired and I'm frustrated because I don't want to do that stuff anymore. That's because those are hard places. That's hard ground that needs to be turned up. And if you've ever felt that way, touch base with Robert and Stacy after service. Ask them about the Genesis process. Is it easy? No. It will kick your butt. And all the kids are like, you just said butt. Yeah, I did. <laughs> it, will, it, will, it will make you work. But it's worth it because the hard places stay at hard places unless they're dealt with. We have to soften those places. We have to plow them and till them so they're ready to receive. The next is this, the rocky soil. Jesus says it's, this is the soil that looks good on the surface. Man, it looks nice. That soil looks good. You scrape away a bit of that topsoil and guess what you find? Lots of rocks, lots of things right below the surface. He says it's this seed, when the, the good seed, remember the seed is good. When that seed lands in that soil, it goes, yeah, a good place to land, a good, a good layer of soil. And it starts growing, but it realizes quickly that there's nowhere, nowhere for the roots to go. Because roots don't grow through rock, right? Roots don't grow through rock. He says it's the person who receives it first, but they lose the seed and they lose the harvest when persecution and trouble comes on the sake for the sake of the word. See, it's the person who who man, Jesus sounds good. And I want to receive this this the salvation that God has available for me, and, and I'm ready to embrace this. But at the first sign of opposition, at the first sign of, man, what are you doing? 
Have you lost your mind? Why are you going to church? Why have you become one of those crazy Christians? And that person starts doubting and says, you know, you're probably right. There was a couple in our church in Alaska who, who met Jesus. And we give praise to the Lord for that. Met the Lord through our church. Um, and I remember one Sunday they had actually come to me with tears in their eyes, both of them. Tears in the, their eyes because they had gone back to their family and shared, you know what? We started going to church and God's just doing some stuff in our lives. And their family didn't know what to do with them. And started doing things like this. Oh, oh, you're Christians now, so we can't do that. We can't say, oh, you're all that, you know. And it broke their hearts. It broke their hearts. And you see, what they had in that moment was a decision, a choice to make. Because they realized this is hard. Living for Jesus is not easy, it's hard. Can I get an amen? They could have gone one or two ways. They could have said in that moment, you know what? You know, we'll just be this on, on Sunday, and then when we're with our friends and our family, we'll just keep living like we always lived. That's the root, the seed that takes root springs up, but when the perse persecution comes, it dies out. It cannot produce a harvest. Why? Because it needs, it needs roots to produce a harvest. Plants don't produce if they don't have roots. Now, I'm thankful that they didn't do that. They came and they sought counsel and said, we don't know what to do. Help us out. Walk with us through this. And they started making life choices that led them to a place where they were removing the rocks and living their lives differently without, by the way, having to shun their family. It just gave them the confidence to be who they are in the midst of people who would say, oh, you're one of those Christians now. They're like, yeah, we are, but we love you, and we're here, and, and it was okay. This happens over and over and over in people's lives as they come to the Lord, maybe for the first time and maybe for the hundredth, thousandth time. Maybe you've known Jesus for 30 years, but there's those places in your life where you keep having false starts. It's like, okay, God, I'm going to receive that word. I'm going to go to that retreat, and you're going to speak to me, and I'm going to meet it. You're going to meet me in that place, and I'm going to go home excited. And by Thursday, whatever was growing feels like it's gone. Because I come back to the reality of my circumstances and what's going on. James says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Get rid of the moral filth. See, the, the path is the places maybe where we've been trampled on. But the rocky things, those rocky places, so often are the things that are hidden in our lives that we don't want to let go of. It's the hidden and secret and unrepentant sin in our lives. It's the places in our lives that we refuse to let God have control of. Things like pride and unforgiveness and disobedience, anger, and malice, immorality, Things that were like, God, I'm just, I'm giving my life to you this much. 
But everything else, I'm going to hang on to that because you know what? Because that's just the way I am. And, and this is, you understand, you get it. God says, no, I do love you. And I'm committed to you, but you need to do some work. See, the farmer who doesn't remove the rocks from his field will never produce a crop. He'll never be, a, he's not going to be a farmer for very long. It's the same way for us. If we refuse to deal with the hidden things in our lives, the things that people don't even know about, the people around us, the maybe things that we're discovering. Once we're aware of those things, we got to do something. The farmer gets out in the field, and you know what they do? By hand. They dig it up, and then they go back, and they remove the rocks. They get rid of the rocks, and they prepare the soil. We have to do the hard work of removing whatever doesn't belong in our lives. You have to do the hard work of removing whatever doesn't belong. Well, how do I know what doesn't belong? By reading this. By reading this. By simply going, okay, God, speak to me from your word. That same guy in Anchorage who I talked about, was, and I've talked about Dan before, he, uh, we would meet at Starbucks a couple times a week and be in the Word. And my favorite phone calls when, when Dan would call me and say, Barry, did you know that the Bible talks about this part of my... Yes, I did. See, because he didn't need me to tell him. What I did is I introduced him to the Word of God and then God told him. Way more effective. He's like, do you know that the Lord speaks about the way that I speak my language, my speech, that I shouldn't cuss so much? <laughs> yeah, I, I knew that. <laughs> Guys, catch this. This is so key. He didn't hear it from me on Sunday morning. Right? right? Tyler, come here real quick. You're like, you said in the front row. It, it didn't look like this. I, I didn't say, hey, buddy, uh, let me just pull you over here real quick. Welcome, welcome to Thrive Church. But I just want you to know when you come back next week, don't use that word. <laughs> How do you think he's going to feel? <laughs> Got a few words. <laughs> you're awesome. Um, I would venture to guess you won't come back next week. Right? We used to sing the song in church. Come just as you are, as long as you comb your hair a certain way and dress with certain clothes and don't speak a certain way, then you're okay. No. It took him hearing it from the word of God, not me beating him over the head with the Bible. The best thing you can do for yourself and other people is introduce them to the word of God and let the word of God convict them because it will produce lasting change. That's the reason we're always talking about be in the word, do your devotions, spend time hearing what God has to speak to you. You have to do the hard work of removing what doesn't belong in your life. See, here's the thing. Satan always wants to use sorrow and trouble and persecution to draw people away from God. The irony of it is this is that sorrow, trouble, and persecution for the person who's cultivating good soil will draw them closer to God. The very thing that will draw us closer to the presence of God is the thing that the enemy tries to use to pull us away. We have to tend to our soil. He then talks about the thorns. 
This is a seed that's sown amongst a place where there's weeds and there's thorns and there's plants that are already there and they're useless. Weeds are useless. They're not pretty, right? They give people like hay fever. They spread. Thorns can, can hurt you. They're absolutely useless. It says the seed falls in these places where there's thorns around, and then the seed starts growing, but then the weeds start growing right alongside of those plants. And what happens? Those, thorn, those thorns and those weeds rob the seed of the nutrition, the nutrients they need to grow and be strong and be healthy. Jesus talks about the worries and the cares of this world and then the deceitfulness of wealth. There's two things that he speaks about, and, and these are really two sides of the same coin. The, the worries and, and cares of this world, he says, you know, there's so much you can be concerned about in this life. There's so much that, that can weigh on your heart that you can, that, 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 that can just keep your focus and attention. And then it says the deceitfulness of wealth. Why is it deceitful? Because it promises to do what only God can do. Why is wealth deceitful? Because it tells you, wealth will tell you that it can keep you safe and protected and guarded. And if you just had more money, you'd be okay. And nothing could be further from the truth. See, prosperity is a false sense of security. We're asking the question, what's in it for me? People who come to the, to the Lord and say, okay, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Now, what's in it for me? Wrong question. See, because this is not a sales pitch. It's salvation. If you fall off of a ship and someone throws you, right, a life, a life ring, a life preserver, you're not going to say, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> come on. Salvation's in it. Not drowning is in it for you. Two sides of the same coin. One side would say, I, I, I'm afraid of not having enough, of not being taken care of. And the other side of that same coin would say, I just have to have more. And enough isn't enough. I need more, and I need more, and I need more. I've gotten to travel to some of the poorest countries in the world. And I've seen people living in abject poverty. But here's what, something that the Lord spoke to me a few years ago is that poverty is not about what you have. Poverty is about, and poverty mentality is all about what you believe your source is. See, because I've met people who live in multi-million dollar homes, and I would say that person is living in poverty. And I've met some people who live in a shack and some of the richest people I know in the world. See, poverty is this. If anything other than God is your source, you are living in poverty. If, you are li if, if anything other than God himself is your source, you are living in poverty, and it looks this way. It's the hand-wringing and the worries of this world because I don't take him at his word, and I don't trust him with my life. Now, let me say again, it doesn't mean it's easy or just you know, skipping through the daisies. Sometimes that, that step of faith is hard. But if anything other than God himself is, is not my source, I'm living in poverty. Jesus encounters a man in Matthew 19, a young man, an eager man who comes to him and he says, Lord, Lord, what must I do to be saved? 
And he's got this energy about him. What do I need to do to be saved? Validate me. Help me out here. And Jesus first says this question, why do you call me Lord or teacher? Why do you call that to me? And it reveals something about this young man's heart that comes out later. So Jesus says, you need to keep the commandments, do all of these things. And the guy gets excited and he says, I've done all of that. Yes. I listened in Sunday school and I, I honor my parents and I'm a good guy. And Jesus is like, right on. One thing though you still have to do. Verse 20, he says, uh, the man says, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? He, it's almost like he knows. I've done everything, and I still feel like there's something missing. Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what's missing. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. His heart's desire was to know Jesus, and he comes face to face with Jesus. He's asking the right questions. Lord, what do I need to do? Come on, just tell me. He even says, teacher and Lord. But his acknowledgement of the authority of Jesus Christ was just lip service because his heart was not surrendered to God. And so when Jesus says, great, you've done all of, you've checked all of the boxes. Now I just need you to live in obedience to me and do the thing I tell you to do. And he says he went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Let me ask you this morning, is God opposed to money or wealth? Not at all. In fact, he promises to bless. And when you read in scripture, you see people who were rich. Lack of a better term. They were wealthy. They were rich. They were blessed of God, and God gave this thing to them. But he's also aware of the danger that it poses, that wealth is a temptation. There's an allure, and there's a, there's a thing that the enemy can use to leverage against God's people. It's like what you know, ever seen in a desert, you know, in may, maybe in a movie or maybe in real life, you see that mirage, and it looks like there's water, and then you get there and you realize there's no water. It was just the heat and the way that the heat comes off the earth. And so pursuing those things that don't really satisfy. See, the rich man was really hungry. He was really thirsty for God, for, for Jesus to answer that question. But when, he, when it came down to it, he was unwilling to surrender his life and do the thing that would lead to the very thing that he wanted. Why? Because he was wealthy. Because, he, because his stuff had taken such a place in his life. And here's the thing. He was living in poverty. He goes away sad. He's sad. He is sad, but he's not sad enough to follow Jesus. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to pay attention to this. God does not meet us on our terms. We always come to him on his terms. And I believe there are so many Christians, and maybe even you, you look good on the outside, but you're sad on the inside. Why? Because you're unwilling, and they're unwilling to submit and do the things that God has called them to do. And there is this tension that exists in your life where you know there's more, and you know it's close, but because of your unwillingness, 
and your worries about the things of this life and, and wealth and the trappings of this world are unwilling to let go of those things and simply do the things that God has called you to do. And I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to where their countenance is sad, it's depressed, it's hurting. And we can identify all of the different reasons. Well, there's this, and there's that person, there's this situation. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, will I simply walk in obedience to the things that God tells me to do, or will I not? And that's it, church. It's that simple. See, because everything else, everything I let stay, every weed and every thorn, every worry of this world and the pursuit of wealth that I let stay in my life will choke out every bit of life that God wants to pour into me. It's the soil that looks good on the surface, but below the surface, there's trouble. Let me ask you this question this morning. Do you own your stuff? Or does your stuff own you? Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? If Jesus were to speak to you in the middle of the night tonight to wake you up and look you face to face and say, I want you to sell everything, get rid of everything, go serve me in some way, somewhere, would you or could you? Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you. I believe that credit card debt is one of the greatest hindrances to people walking in obedience to God. God's calling, God, I can't, I've got to pay off that, that, that credit card. Now, this is not meant to beat you down, and I, I'm in a room of this many people, I'm sure there's a lot of credit card debt here, I'm sure. But I want to encourage you Get rid of the stuff. Rip up the weeds and the, the thorns that don't belong that keep you from walking in obedience to the voice of God. Like James says, get rid of them. Get rid of them. Rip them out. Do whatever you need to do. Get rid of the stuff that keeps you from hearing his word being in his presence. I'm going to close with this. The good soil. So what's the qualities of good soil? Have you ever, have you ever thought that? So what makes good soil? Well, let me tell you. Um, good soil is actually called loam soil. 25% water, 25% gas. Okay, so, so right off the top, 50% of what makes good soil isn't dirt. Water and gases. 18% sand, 18% silt, 9% clay, and 5% organic matter. That's what makes, when you go to Home Depot and you buy a bag of soil, that's what you're getting. You're paying for air and water. <laughs> that's what makes, but here's what's important about good soil, is it receives the seed. It has everything that it needs already inherently in it for that seed to germinate, to have their nutrients in the air and the water that it needs to start growing, for the root to start going down, and for the plant to start breaking through the surface. It's already there. Because remember, we talked about the fact that the seed is good, right? The seed is always good. Good seed in good soil bears fruit. It just does. It just does. Good seed in good soil bears fruit. 
By the way, you don't make the seed grow. Your job is to tend to the soil of your, your life to receive the seed. And then you nurture the seed, but you can't make the seed grow. Paul writes about that in Corinthians. He says it's not me or Apollos or any of these other guys that makes the seed grow. God makes the seed, makes the seed grow. It's he who makes us grow. Our job is to tend to our hearts and our minds. And by the way, comparing your results to other people's, it, well, it just puts you back into one of those other categories. Because he says that the seed produces 160 and 30 times what was sown. That means that the same seed in your life will produce different results than it will in mine. And the last thing I should do is go, well, wait a minute. Why, why are you better than me? Or why, why you got more? Why you got less? Or the person who says, oh, I produced 100. <laughs> you only got 30. <laughs> yeah, your soil just got messed up. It is your responsibility to tend to the soil in your life. It is your responsibility. God says, I will be faithful in sowing seed daily. See through his word. See through prayer. See through being in church on a Sunday morning. See through worship that he is constantly sowing seed. We have to ask ourselves, though, what's my soil like? Where am I at? Let's stand together.